Hey everyone, you're listening to the MLEPC podcast. Thank you for joining us. The podcast features every previous Sunday's sermon and plenty of other cool content like interviews and mini-series. Please remember to share our content and subscribe to our channel so you can stay up to date with everything that we create. You can find out more about what's happening at the church by visiting our website at mlepc.org or checking us out on our social media. Once again, we thank you for tuning in to the MLEPC podcast, and we hope to see you at an event soon. Thank you to Cindy and Pat and the choir for leading us in those beautiful carols this morning. Um, always a great thing to uh, lead into Christmas uh, with Christ focused in our hearts. This morning, uh, I want to welcome any of you who are new here, uh, especially those who are watching online. We are a church at MLEPC who seeks to make disciples to make followers of Christ. And we long for those disciples, those followers of Christ, to make disciples themselves. So we have a mission as a church that the gospel would be proclaimed, that the good news of Jesus Christ would fill every heart in every part of the world. That's what we're about. This morning, our passage again is from Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. And we also have two other passages as well. So uh, let's be attentive to the word of God. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. Another translation says he will quiet you in love, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with you With all who oppress you, I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you in. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Micah 5, 1 through 5a. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times." Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, and march through our fortresses. And finally, 
from the New Testament, Luke 4, 14 through 20. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing unto you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. This morning, we'll be taking another look at Zephaniah chapter 3, which is the same passage that Pastor Carolyn eloquently preached on last Sunday. Last Sunday, the focus was on the joy aspects of this passage, while today, we will emphasize the peace aspects. We'll supplement our passage from Zephaniah, which was written in 640 BC, with a passage from the prophet Micah, parts of which were written in the late 515 BC. So we're getting closer and closer and closer to the birth of Jesus. When I was younger, I had some anxiety. One of my teachers in the parochial school, uh, when I was attending in the first grade, assigned homework that was more appropriate for college students. I was under so much pressure that I developed a strange tick. My parents thought that there was something wrong, only to realize that I was stressed out by the hours of age-inappropriate homework uh, with which I had to cope. My dad, who was a teacher when he first got out of college, confronted my first grade teacher and set her on a better track. His Italian accent probably put thoughts of the godfather in her mind, so she quickly <laughs> complied. The thing that really allowed my parents to realize the extent of my anxiety at that time was when they found me weeping and gorging on a bag of Reese's Pieces candy. It was a kind of eating of my emotions. Later, after watching Steven Spielberg's movie E.T., I could relate to the extraterrestrial's use of Reese's Pieces to calm one's emotions. <laughs> it would take a whole lot more than a bag of Reese's Pieces to bring peace to the people of Israel during the time of the minor prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah wrote his prophecy during the reign of King Josiah during the seventh century BC. As Pastor Carolyn mentioned last week, King Josiah attempted to reform the nation of Israel by banishing all of Israel's obsession with the worship of Canaanite gods, both in their daily life and in the temple practices and in the high places where they would make sacrifice. Josiah's attempt did not really work, for Jerusalem was just too far gone in their idolatry. Zephaniah's message is divided into three parts. The first part is this poetic kind of prophecy in which the prophet describes what amounts to be a reversal of the good 
and ordered and peaceful reality of Genesis chapter 1, where the Bible starts. Eden descends into disorder and chaos, becoming uninhabitable by the people whom God created to live there. The fall of humanity from grace takes its ultimate shape then in the history of Israel during Zephaniah's time later. And Jerusalem is on this collision course with the Babylonian Empire as a result. Just as the people were banished from the land, remember, land represents God's dwelling place. It says in Genesis that God walked around in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. This collision course with Babylon is just another example of that. You're blessed when you're in the land. You're with God when you're in the land. When you're out of the land, you're not with God, and you are cursed. All of Israel's institutions which would promote the worship of foreign gods would be destroyed. All the leaders who perpetrate such idolatries will be gone. And all of the crooked economic systems that promoted injustice among the peoples would also be gone. Just as the Temple of Eden, where God dwelled with Adam and Eve in the beginning stages of creation, was removed, they were removed from that presence, right? They were kicked out of the garden so too the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, a result of the same kind of pride and hubris, a result of the same kind of rejection of Yahweh that was really present all along. At the tail end of Zephaniah's first section, the prophet calls out, he whispers to the remnant, those who are willing to humbly seek the Lord, according to Zephaniah 2.3, God will raise up this remnant, this minority of meek and prayerful people who will repent on behalf of Jerusalem so that God might somehow restore the people after the fall of the city. The second section of Zephaniah does something very interesting. Not only will the day of the Lord, this apocalyptic action of God's justice, come down upon Jerusalem, but it will also come down upon all the nations around it. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, and all the other knights will not get away with their evil action either. Their arrogance, their violence, along with that of God's own people in Israel, will result in the subjection to this Babylonian empire, which God will use as a secondary instrument or tool to accomplish his punishment will. The final people group targeted in this section of the prophet's writings are the leaders, the prophets, the priests of Israel. Much to them is given as God's chosen people, therefore much from them will be taken away in light of their covenant infidelity. Well, that's a heavy thing, isn't it? <laughs> it all looks bleak in the bleak midwinter, right? But God's punishment will not last forever. The ultimate purpose of God's punishment is not to punish, but instead it is to restore, to forgive, to heal, so that the peoples around the world would seek out the God of Israel in faith and ultimately be included in God's covenant with Abraham. That was the promise all along. And this brings us to this third section of Zephaniah in which today's passage is located. We remember that God's covenant with Abraham states that God would bless all the nations, both Jewish and Gentile, through Abraham's lineage. 
God's final decision takes place in Zephaniah 3.8. And it states this. God says this. My final decision is to gather all the nations and pour out my burning indignation. Uh, (laughs) That doesn't sound so good. But the most surprising part of this fire of judgment that Yahweh is about to pour out of the nations, according to Zephaniah, again, is that its aim is not to destroy, but to purify, to cleanse, to make right. God's intention is to heal, to transform the nations, including Israel, into one unified human family. And upon their purification, they will turn from evil and repentance, have their lips and their hearts cleansed, and they will, quote-unquote, call upon the name of the Lord. Our section here gives us these promises. It says, Be glad. Rejoice with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment, number one. He's taken away your punishment. Number two, he has turned back your enemy. And number three, The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. He is with you. Not only is this reality to take place when the days of Babylonian exile are over and the Israelites return to the promised land, but the primary fulfillment of this promise has to do with the deliverer, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the hero of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, the crushed redeemer, Of Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, all of these passages have these nuanced connections. Several of them in the Hebrew mention this thing called the worm, which is super weird, right? Psalm 22, for example, a phrase stands out. It says, but I am a worm. I am no man. A reproach of men, I'm despised by the people. The Hebrew word for that here is tola, And it's a a Middle Eastern worm that actually lives in a tree and is crushed for its crimson blood dye. It hangs on a tree and it's crushed for its blood. It's the same word used in the suffering servant section of Isaiah 41. Jesus Christ is made to be a worm hanging on a tree crushed to the point of bleeding as an offering. He is our peace. The word propitiation. People say, why do you talk about those weird words? Why do you keep bringing up these weird words? Because they matter. (laughs) Propitiation, offering, sacrifice, immolation, victimization, libation, oblation. You open up your hymnal, you see these weird words in there. But what the word really refers to is a sacrifice that pacifies. A sacrifice is made in order to bring peace to the world. Peace between God and us. Zephaniah 3 is really at root referring to this future time of peace that will be accomplished by God himself. Zephaniah says, the Lord The king of Israel is with you. Remember, upon the cross of Jesus is the moniker, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, I-N-R-I in the Latin. Jesus is the king of Israel. 
God is with us. Emmanuel, he dwells with us. The passage in Micah is a prophecy of this deliverer too, who will be sent by God in the future to save Israel and the nations. This God with flesh on. It says this, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be king over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. How can the king of Israel have origins from ancient times? You see, the prophecy tells of the future, and the future is Jesus Christ. He will be a ruler who is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. The word Bethlehem means the city of bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. When we consume him every day, he nourishes us and he gives us peace. This ruler, Jesus, has origins from old, from ancient times. Remember in Daniel, another prophet, in the Hebrew Bible, it calls God himself the ancient of days. Jesus is timeless. And then Jesus directly points to himself as the fulfillment of these prophecies. He says something as bold as, before Abraham ever was, I am. The term I am or hemi in Greek is the exact meaning of the Hebrew word for God in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh, I am. I have no beginning. I have no end, I just am. So here's what I don't understand. How can anyone not believe that Jesus is God? Prophecy after prophecy written thousands of years before Jesus or many, many centuries before Jesus, combined with these nuanced details of Jesus' life and his words and his deeds, all point to him being the promised one of God, the one who would save Israel from their sins. It's literally impossible in my mind that it is a coincidence. It's literally impossible that later writers just formulated this fictitious story using the Old Testament material in such a way that made Jesus seem as if he fulfilled all these things. You'd have to have a really, really, really good subplot going on there. All the intertwining. And everybody would have had to have been communicating in a way that only God can communicate. Too much attests to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Michael also states that Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. That's the Virgin Mary. And it also says that this ruler will gather in uh, his, his brethren around them and that they would fulfill the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are the 12 disciples. It also states that this ruler will be the shepherd. And Jesus calls himself God's shepherd, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus knows all these passages, and he knows that he is the fulfillment of them. Perhaps most importantly, Micah tells us that this man will be our peace. Not only that he will provide peace, but that he is peace. 
He is the embodiment of peace between God and humans because he is God and he is able to accomplish our peace in a world of turmoil. He is our peace. In a world of brokenness, he is our peace. In a world of disruption, he's our peace. Jesus' kingship is also referenced all the way back to the covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7. It's one of my favorite covenants of the Bible. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. There's this little interplay. David says, God, you want me to buy a house? And God says, ha, ha, you know, the heavens are my house. The earth is my footstool. You're going to build me a house? But the house, the word house here, it doesn't mean like a house. It means your lineage, your family. And he says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. It's because Jesus and God the Father are related. It's the same DNA. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed uh, him from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established for eternity. Now, in the Septuagint translation, sorry to nerd out about this, but it's important stuff. That's why I do it. In the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible passage, it says, I will be his father and he will be my son if it happens that he transgresses, period. (laughs) And then it says, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, by the stripes or floggings of the sons of men. None of these three verses seem to be connected, as if to make this distinction between uh, the future Messiah, Son of God, and the Son of Man who will take on the punishment due to humans. The one who takes on the sins of the world. The insinuation here is that this offspring of King David will be God's own son in a very direct manner. There's a significant and dramatic break in the passage, literally when it says, if he happens to transgress, period. And then then the, pa- the phrase falls off a cliff. Followed by a purely messianic claim, likewise confirmed in Isaiah. 2 Samuel 7 essentially states that the floggings deserved by the sons of men will end up on the shoulders of the Son of God. Isaiah 53 states, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his floggings, we are healed. Furthermore, the covenantal promise to King David in reference to King David's ancestor was that this man of the future would also be king over Israel. Not for a day, Not for a few years, not for a few months, not for a generation, but forever. 
This promise is impossible unless it is in reference to something completely supernatural and accomplished by God's own offspring, the Messiah. So, let's take a look at the Zephaniah passage in chapter 3 and discuss the ways that Jesus in the New Testament is the confirmation of God's promise each and every time. These fulfilled promises consist of the following things. Reparation for sin and victory over the enemy. That's a big one. God dwelling with his people as king. That's a big one. God will give you peace by quieting you in love. God will gather in those in exile from God. And God will rescue and heal the lame. Those who suffer shame will regain for them their dignity. Zephaniah 3.15. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The people of God have deserved the consequences of their transgressions all along, both Jew and Gentile. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.24 through 26, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He is our peace. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. It says in Romans, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, you see, God's very patient with us, in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's how we get peace. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For Christ must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Colossians 2, 15. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and the authorities here in the Greek are in reference to demonic spirits of the air that cause death in our world today. So the takeaway is that for those of us who have been bitten by death, for those of us who have been under spiritual attack, Jesus wants us to come to him. He puts all of the enemies into subjection under his feet. God the Father puts it under subjection of Jesus' feet. The second promise of Zephaniah is that God will dwell among his people as king. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 18, 37, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Revelation 19:16 and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords 
Jesus is God's dwelling among us. Jesus is God's king of Israel and king over the entire cosmos. He's calling out to us to make him the king of our hearts. Is Jesus the king of your heart? Practically speaking, why would we need a king at this very moment in our 21st century American setting? Let's see. Let's do a little assessment. Can our presidents and political leaders be our kings? Not sure about the track record there. Can money be our king? Maybe for this amount of time, but money can run out quickly in the blink of an eye. Can romance or sex or popularity or power be our goal and therefore king or ruler over our lives? Maybe for a short period of time, but all of those things come to an end. And they were never designed to be king over our hearts. The human heart has a template for its filling and its fulfilling. And that template is shaped exactly like Jesus. There is no true peace, no true satisfaction, no true hope outside of the God who dwells with us as King Jesus. In just a few days, we will celebrate Christmas, the day that our King and our God came to dwell with us. Born into this world as a humble child. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with him? The next fulfillment from Zephaniah 3 is as follows. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. Another translation says he will quiet you in his love. will rejoice over you with singing. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says this beautiful thing. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who, sent, who were sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children in as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you are not willing. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give peace as the world gives it. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Jesus is God among us. He has come to quiet us in love. He has come with peace in his outstretched arms. He has come to carry the burden, to give us rest from our works toward earning God's love and approval on a daily basis. As a close friend of mine said about his conversion, he heard God whisper to him, Son, you don't have to do this anymore. You don't have to keep trying to drown out your sin by working to please me. You already please me 
through Jesus, my son. Practically speaking, where in this world can we get true peace? From the world around us? I would say that this world offers a whole lot of turmoil. Anxiety, stress, depression, suicide, they're all on the rise, especially among the most vulnerable and among young people in the world today. Can we get it from our relationships? Those may be good, but they are not good all the time. Do we think the drug of the day will give us peace or finding our identity in ourselves will somehow give us peace? Do we think standing up for justice and equity will give us peace no matter how good that is? You see, there are many sparks of peace and justice in our world, but peace is neither a movement nor an event or a series of things or a series of things that we can acquire or a feeling or a manufactured identity. None of those things give us peace. True peace is a person. His name is Jesus, the one who dwells with us. That is why identity is so important today. We finally realized that our identity matters. What matters is less so what you do, but more so who you are in the first place. And the world around you is going to try and define you and tell you what your identity is. But here's the thing. Even we cannot define our own identities. Only God can do that. Jesus says for those who come to him, their identity is clear. You are a child of the living God. A whole person who can truly live in peace and that is what I want. That is what I have. I, me, I have it. Not because of something I've done, but in spite of all the things I've done and in light of what God has done. This next promise from Zephaniah that Jesus confirms is as follows. God will gather those in who are in exile. So how are we in exile? What does that even mean? How are we without a home? Most of us have a home. We're relatively settled. But what, remember, when Zephaniah is referring to a homeland, he's referring to the Garden of Eden, our original home, the place where God dwells with his people in perfect peace, in shalom, in harmony, heaven. The place where God dwells in this heavenly realm with us. And just as Israel was exiled from the promised land into Babylon because of their violent transgressions, so too we were exiled from Eden because of our violent transgression. I know some people think, well, what do I do? I, I can't answer that question. I just know one thing. We all do things that mess up bad. <laughs> Deep down in us, Way down, there's a part of us that is longing to belong. We're looking for a home. We're longing to return to the place where we belong. And deep down, we know that place is transcendent. It has all kinds of things that are different from what we're used to in our normal mundane lives. It must have some aspects of this world because God originally made this world good. The book of Revelation promises a new earth. 
but it also has aspects that are completely go beyond this world, extracted from the world's pain and suffering. A place where God rejoices over us in singing. We worship him in singing. Revelation 21.4 describes that day and that place. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Look up the lyrics to the theme song for the 1980s show Cheers. And it kind of describes a worldly view of what I'm talking about. But Jesus gives us the real thing. The last and final promise in Zephaniah tells us this. I will rescue the lame. I will gather in the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise. I will restore your fortunes before all the earth, before your very eyes, says the Lord. Jesus Christ heals the lame in the New Testament, and he heals the lame now. And sometimes I feel pretty lame. (laughs) That is, the physically lame, the socially lame, the emotionally lame, the psychologically lame, the economically lame, the mentally lame, and the spiritually lame. Jesus makes the blind see. He makes the paralyzed walk. He makes the leper clean, which resolves the issue of both illness and being ostracized from one's own community. Do you ever feel that? Jesus liberates the demon-possessed. He gives dignity to the poor. Those society that that has deemed unimportant, Jesus gives them value and importance. He calms those under mental duress. He touches the hearts of those who are hurting and lonely and confused. He challenges the rich to sow and therefore restore their fortunes in heaven instead of on earth. He spends time speaking with us, engaging with us, converting entire groupings of sinners, forgiving their sins, and calling them to follow him. That is our peace. If you feel alone, come to Jesus. If you feel like you don't belong, come to Jesus. He'll give you a home. If you feel like you are hurting, come to Jesus and he will heal you. If you are stuck in your own mind and can't get out of that cycle, Jesus will free you. If you need a challenge to change your life, Jesus will challenge you and will also patiently give you the strength to follow through. If you are stuck in a pattern of bad and costly choices, come to Jesus and he will renew your life. Let it be so for his glory, and as a blessing to many. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Carolyn. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check out our website at mlepc.org, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a podcast. Have a blessed day.